Welcome to our True Crime, True Family podcast. Quarantine equals no life, so we've decided to start a true crime podcast. I'm Emily, and along with my mom, Kate, and our cousin Paige, we will be discussing popular true crime documentaries and cases. Due to sensitive subject material and explicit language, viewer discretion is advised. Okay, so up to the point... Like, it was basically, they were just kind of introducing the people, and we were talking about Squeaky From. <laughs> oh, okay. And so, um, so the, um, okay, I'll just start the last paragraph that I think we were at. Okay. So, um, Jeff, the... I don't know. I guess he was like the historian guy or whatever. He said that Squeaky was described as a true believer. And like um, I would hope that all of them were true believers. Like you just kill people and you're like "Eh, I don't know if I believe in that 100% but enough to kill you about it. Um, Like don't you think people would be like "Um, maybe we shouldn't kill people if you were on the fence believing him. (laughs) So Chris Connolly is like maybe she was more of a performer. <clears throat> she's very verbal. She's completely deranged. Yeah. And she also she is like what Opie would be if he was a girl. Like she looks like that. That I don't know. She just looks like she belonged on Andy Griffith. Um and a guy had a snake around his neck, and that would be a no for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Squeaky's very, like, awkward. It makes me uncomfortable. And Jeff says that drugs were always an important part of Charlie's appeal. And, like, I would imagine that if you ply people with enough drugs and alcohol, it would make, like, brainwashing them, like, a touch easier. They show a group of hippies swaying, and they look so fucking dirty. <laughs> Like, I am not, like, a big toucher anyways. That looks like a complete nightmare to me. Um, he says smoking marijuana and taking LSD would open up your consciousness. And, like, probably your legs also. <laughs> That's probably the more, the bigger point that Charlie was making out of that. Um, Patricia says she was smoking a lot of marijuana hash. And now I... Don't I have no idea if that is the same thing as regular old marijuana, so I gave it a goog. And like when someone says marijuana hash, I imagine like when you try to smoke like the ashes. The what? <laughs> like the ashes, like if <laughs> doesn't it ash? And so like I thought it would be like if you just tried to smoke old ashes and get high off that, or if you like mixed ashes with new weed. Yeah, I don't really know what hash is. But apparently, no, not a bit. Apparently, it's something a more concentrated form. Oh. So the THC levels are higher. So it's actually much better than what <laughs> I was imagining. Like, I was way off. I really, I was like, would well, do these fools like, well, and look, like just go marijuana hash. I don't really even know like what hash is, 
But these people look like the type of people that would be like, oh, here's an eighth of weed. Let's make it a sixteenth and dump all these ashes in it mm-hmm. or whatever. Double it. So um, Patricia had said, said she's acid a couple times. And that, to me, does not sound like a fun Yeah, I've drug. never done that before. Well, no, I obviously haven't. Um, but I would imagine it would make me very paranoid. Because isn't it like where you see I don't things? know. So... Patricia's like, I drank and did drugs with my high school friends, so it was no biggie. You know who would know? Mary would know. Mary probably did. <laughs> so Charlie would do special ceremonies daily, and they would use LSD. So Patricia says that they took hundreds of acid trips together. Charlie would put the doses in his followers' mouths, and Charlie would take it himself, but then he always dosed himself less than he dosed everyone else so he could stay in control. And then sometimes he would tell them that he was Jesus Christ come again. Like a fun size Jesus, maybe. <laughs> like, what is he even talking about? Like, I, like, I, I, I don't even know. Like, people that call themselves Jesus Christ, like, I can't. It's like, all right, <laughs> I'm sure. Probably Jesus wouldn't be telling me to kill someone, but yeah, you're Jesus, all right. Leslie Van Houten says that Charlie would pose like he was being crucified while they were tripping. That sounds like a nightmare. Like, they're on acid. That sounds absolutely horrifying. She says that it was very realistic. The way she talks is like she's absolutely exhausted. (laughs) Like, she's just like, look, I'm really tired of talking about this man. He would make connections like his home, like his name was Man Son, so Son of Man. It's like, okay, that you needed acid to make that connection. He would ask them if they would die for him. And so Jeff says that he used LSD as a means of mind control. And Patricia says there was group sex. And nope, that would not be for me. I would have been very safe from that cult. Like, first of all, I don't care what he says. There is not enough drugs in the world to make that little man attractive <laughs> to me. He, oh, he's just, oof. So Patricia says when he would have men that he was trying to initiate, he would bring whatever women that he had. And so Manson would offer them to him, which gross. Manson says, isn't that what women is for? Like, sir, you are too short to be saying things like that. <laughs> He's like 4'11". He says, women receive men and reflect men. Man holds dominion up over woman. It's been that way since we grunted and we came out of caves. Like, this psycho actually grunted. I... I would have lost it if I was saying sorry. I'd be like, sorry, you're going to have to stop. Like, grunted and came out of caves. Like, you came out of your mom's vagina. So what are you talking about? Leslie says, if a man wanted you, you went with him. You couldn't resist. He was an excellent pimp. Like, that is very... Like, I would be very sad that someone thought that was, like, normal behavior. (laughs) And like, not that, like, if you wanted to go have group sex, 
have fun. But if you felt like you couldn't say no, like, I feel like you should know you can say no. But the entire time she's talking, they're showing these weird old videos. This couple is, like, pressed together. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Manson's head is shaved. Jeff tells us that Manson would send the woman out to be groupies for famous musicians. Like, oh, okay. Like, first of all, I can't imagine a single one of them smelled that great. (laughs) Who are you think you're attracting? You're sending these disgusting, like, dirt women. Ugh. So, Chris Connolly is very over Manson. He's like, you know, Manson thought he was going to be this famous musician, a singer-songwriter, like Bob Dylan or like Neil Young. And he's like, that didn't happen. He sounds so annoyed when he's saying it. So Chris tells us that in the late 60s in Los Angeles, especially in places like Laurel Canyon, it was a very exciting time musically. Joni Mitchell, The Doors, Neil Young, Jackson Brown, Glenn Frey, um, they were all, I guess, like very popular then. And I mean, I recognize some of the names, but I don't think I could tell you any of their songs. Um, Manson's biggest goal in life was to be bigger than the Beatles. And I was like, oh, well, good luck with that. Like back then, musicians had an open door policy. So musicians. And people would their houses looking for record deals and stuff like that so manson would send some some of the women to places that rock stars hung around to try to make some sort of a connection and so patricia and some lady they called yeller like could you imagine your nickname's yeller so they were hitchhiking and a fancy car pulled up beside them and it was dennis wilson the drummer for the beach boys Like, I swear to God, I don't know. I think it's because of Full House. Like, I just could not imagine the Beach Boys. They were a big deal back then. Or hanging anywhere around Manson. Yes, they were a big deal, but, like, I don't know. I just associate them with, like, wholesome things. I don't know. That's why I said (laughs) I think it's probably, like, Full, Full House's fault. Like, all I'm, like, like, I hear Beach Boys, and the next yeah. thing I think is, or the next thing I think is Jesse and the Rippers. <laughs> so, Chris Connolly says that Dennis Wilson was the sexy Beach Boy, and there was no <laughs> doubt about that. And I was like, well, calm down, Chris. <laughs> like, he was like, there's no doubt. He for sure was sexy. So, he couldn't play drums that well, but my gosh, he looked like a rock star. So Dennis picked up these two girls from the Manson family and he takes them back to his house and he goes off to a recording studio to work, which I don't know. I feel like if you're rich and famous, you're just leaving people at your house. Um, and again, like, I, I can't imagine those girls smelled good. So he got back late that night into his man. Along with several other family members, like Mike Love from the Beach Boys says that Dennis came home one night and he told Mike that Charlie and the girls had kind of invited themselves over and stayed for a while. Like, could you, I think (laughs) if I was in the band, I'd be like, are you for fucking real? Call the police and get these freaks out of your house. 
So one of the Manson girls talked about being at Dennis Wilson's house, walking around with the family members by the pool. The girls were always topless and they passed joints around and Dennis really liked women. Chris Connolly says he appears to like women pretty indiscriminately. And so what I heard (laughs) is he banged anything that moved and didn't care anything about looks. So Mike loves that Dennis invited them over for dinner and to meet Charlie and the family. And that sounds very awkward to me. Mike says they were in a group sex type situation and Mike had zero interest in that. So Mike excused himself to go take a shower. Like that is very weird. Mike gets in the shower and the door open and Manson is standing there looking at, looking at, they said looked up at Mike. Like they're like, look. I'm not going to let him forget how short he is either. He looked up at Mike and said, you can't do that. And Mike was like, excuse me, what the fuck are you talking about? And Manson told him, you can't leave the group. And Mike says he looked maniacal. His eyes were all intense. And Mike says, one of your group members is involved in something so weird and so strange. It was frightening and freaky and he didn't like it. And, like, he didn't really know what to do about it. And that's very weird. Like, first of all, I feel like if you're inviting people over to a group sex situation, you know beforehand that they're down for that. Like, I don't think you're just, like, springing that on someone. Like, that's weird. Don't tell me I can't leave the group. You didn't warn me what group I was joining. (laughs) Like, I'm going to sit there and argue with a psychopath. Dennis Wilson actually liked having the Manson family living with him for a little bit. And he thought that Manson was a great intellect. He named him the wizard. Mike says that Dennis Wilson was definitely under Manson's influence. And Jeff says that because Charlie could talk metaphysical mush, you know, stuff about Dale Carnegie and the Bible and honing in on Dennis Wilson's insecurities about his own talent. So... Like, Charlie kind of just influenced him to, like, kind of be like, oh, this guy totally understands me. Dennis was intimidated by the other Beach Boys because in the Beach Boys, he was the low man on the totem pole. So Charlie built him up and he would tell him that his music was exceptional. And Dennis wasn't aware that once Charlie got his hooks into him that he wasn't going to let go. Like, he could never get out of it. But, I mean, does anybody, do you think many people are like, oh, you know what? I know this guy's psycho. Let me just go ahead and take my chances. Like, um, Mike says that Dennis paid for a lot of things, like food, transportation, and medication. And, like, by medication, you mean weed? Because I don't think a single one of those people saw a doctor ever. Jeff says, (laughs) Jeff says that the months that the Manson family Stayed with Dennis, cost Dennis over a hundred thousand dollars. That's like months. That's not years. Like that. Ouch. Although you know what? Oh if yeah. Someone else is paying it, and they don't give a fuck about paying it. I bet you could run that money up real quick. So Chris Connolly says that living with Dennis Wilson had other benefits for Manson. He got to meet a bunch of people in the music industry. He got to meet other rock stars and. Oddly enough, he impressed Neil Young. And so Neil Young said, I knew Charlie Manson. He wasn't a songwriter. He was a song spewer. Chris Connolly says that it is astonishing to think that Neil Young took an interest in Charles Manson's music. 
And Neil Young says, Manson's music is good, just a little out of control. And Jeff says that for a few months, Dennis Wilson thought Charlie was a musical genius. Like, (laughs) didn't we just hear that Dennis Wilson was like the worst one in the band? So like, Manson wrote a song called Cease to Exist. And they play some, some of it. And I mean, I guess it's fine. I would never think about it again. And it does seem like like a song you would hear back in that day, but like it's not anything like I don't know. But so Dennis Wilson brought Cease to Exist to the Beach Boys and he renamed it and gave it some new lyrics and he called it Never Learn Not to Love and they actually recorded it. So Mike Love was unaware of like the origins of the song so he thought Dennis wrote it and so the Beach Boys did the Mike Douglas show and performed that song and Chris Connolly is like so the squeaky clean Beach Boys performed a song written by Charles Manson on the Mike Douglas show Chris calls it mind boggling on the (laughs) album only Dennis Wilson was given credit and Manson was fucking furious (laughs) like you know that little man was so livid So he left a bullet and said, I know where you live. I know where your children are. So Manson in 1994 says to Diane Sawyer, I gave Dennis Wilson a bullet, didn't I? I gave him a bullet because he changed the words to my song. (laughs) Dennis Wilson was so terrified of Charlie that he ran away. (laughs) Like you're famous, you idiot. Like. Jeff says that if it was anybody else, Manson would have attacked them. But because it was Je- Dennis Wilson, he has to swallow it and live with it because he still needed um, Dennis Wilson's friend, Terry Melcher. So Terry Melcher was like this big name producer in Hollywood. He was the son of Doris Day and he was living on Cielo Drive in Benedict Can- Canyon. So Manson was determined to become his friend and get a record deal from him. And Manson never considered that, like, Terry Melcher might not think that he was good enough. So Manson pursued Terry Melcher for months. Melcher grew up in Hollywood and kept people kind of used to that, like, user scene. So Melcher did listen to Manson's music out at Spawn Ranch, and Melcher said that they played about a dozen songs by the campfire. He was like, eh, you know, it was kind of like, eh, that's fine. Manson told the family that Melcher promised him a recording contract. Which I wonder if he, like, said that thing in front of him because he was right there, and then later he, like, called him and said it over the phone. He tells Manson, your music is good, but I wouldn't know what to do with you. I was like, I bet Manson loved that. So Manson says, because he did wrong, he lied. When you make a contract, what does a contract mean to you? And it's like, um, it's an agreement that you negotiate and sign, buddy. Like, yeah, like you didn't have a contract. When you make a contract, you keep your word or you lose your life. And it's like, okay, like I don't. Tell the bank that. Like, you lose your life. I'm real sure. He definitely was not built for this world. So, um, 
I wrote, and I'm going to need the exact wording because I feel like Melcher probably said, I'll be in touch or my, or my people will call your people. And what Manson heard was, you are better than the Beatles and Elvis combined. So Jeff tries to sound ultra dramatic as he tells us that the house on Cielo Drive comes to represent all that Manson wants to achieve and isn't able to. Manson was not extremely perseverant. <laughs> Like, he he got told no once, and then he's like, okay, instead of working on anything and coming back, I'm just killing everyone here. So Chris Connolly tells us that by 1969, Terry Melcher, who has humiliated Manson by not giving him his record deal, moves out of the house on Cielo Drive. Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate moved in, and Chris Connolly says it's, He's super melodramatic, but he's very flat. He says how beautiful Sharon Tate was. Jethro from Beverly Hillbilly says that when he first met Sharon, he didn't know who she was. Chris Connolly says that the idea was to get Sharon used to be on, to being on set talking to people. So they put her in a dark wig and threw her on Beverly Hillbillies. Chris Connolly says they didn't want her to look like herself because back then movie actresses wouldn't be caught dead on television. Some lady calls her a starlet and they cut to an interview of Sharon saying, I don't like that word starlet at all. I feel like before you even make an appearance, it's very necessary to learn your craft. I said, well, that doesn't make any sense to me, but I guess she's saying that like, she feels like she was already a trained actress before she came and Starlet implies she's in training, mm-hmm. I guess. But they show a press kit video of Sharon Tate and she was gorgeous. And I do remember her in um, Beverly Hillbillies. Like I like not that well. And I think I only really remember because I remember Grandma and Pap used to like have it on a lot. Like that's what that was the only thing that would be on like before I went to bed when we would stay there mm. but I I mean I don't think they watched it I think probably my dad put it on that's just the only channel yeah Nick that had, like because I think back then that was when Nickelodeon like turned into like just oldies at night yeah so um someone says that Sharon was very insecure she knew a lot of her roles she only got because of her looks like so she she was a like she knew she would never do Shakespeare and she got a part in a movie called The Vampire Killers that was produced by Roman Polanski. Chris Connolly calls him a great filmmaker and says that Sharon and Roman didn't get along at first, but by the time the movie was over, they were in love. Um, most people only knew of Sharon from Valley of the Dolls, which was her they called it her coming out party. So, yeah. Uh, and I don't think I've ever seen that movie, so I don't really know what Valley of the Dolls was. But I, I mean, I remember like oh yeah, he's like of exiled. <clears throat> Isn't Roman Polanski pretty? Not like, really so much now? exiled, but he fled the country to a country with no extradition mm-hmm. laws, so that he doesn't come have. It's so gross, like that. All these, like I don't know, all these stories that come out now, and it's like gross, like. You're just horrible to people in Hollywood. Roman Polanski had huge success with Rosemary's Baby. So Sharon was getting more roles and everything was going well for her. 
um, and she got pregnant. And so her sister says that they were hoping for a boy because they had a long line of girls. So at that time, um, oh, so at that time, you know, um, Roman and Sharon were symbols of success in Hollywood. Sharon was very excited about becoming a mother. They rented the house on Cielo Drive. The house on Cielo had a number of famous owners, and it was photographed uh-huh. for an architectural magazine. It does have, like, insanely gorgeous views. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the house is still I there. do wonder who lives there now. Like, I bet people try to come by there all the time. Uh, so, Roman Polanski was out of the country for work, and Sharon was near the end of her pregnancy. So, she had her friends come stay with her. Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski, Sharon's one-time boyfriend turned friend, Jay Sebring. And now, this has always been something that, like, everybody breezes through that like it's no biggie. But, like, why is your ex staying with you while your husband's gone out of the country? Like, I don't care if pregnant or not. Like, it's weird. I would not think Dan would be like, oh, cool. Like, just have your exes over here. Um, although I say that one of my sister-in-laws actually dated my other (laughs) brother-in-law so what do I know maybe I'm the weird one Jay's nephew says that he was the creator of men's hair design and it's like okay like what the creator like I'm pretty sure people got haircuts before 1969 dude Sharon says Tate's hairstylist (laughs) says he wasn't a barber he was styling men's hair Like, does anybody care about this? Some guy says he single-handedly created the iconic look of nearly every male recording and film star of that time. And so they list a bunch of famous people, and Sharon's hair lady is about to have an orgasm talking about him and his fantastic haircuts. Sharon brought Abigail to her hair lady, and Abigail Folger Uh was an heir to the Folger coffee fortune. Like, man, that's got to be an insane amount of money. Abigail was a social worker. Deborah Tate describes Abigail as a recluse and says she always had her nose in a book. Which is like very, like what a random group of friends. Yeah. Like she's a recluse but hanging out with like all these connected people. Wojtek Frykowski was Abigail's boyfriend and he was also childhood friends with Roman Polanski. That's a very unfortunate boy tech. Like, I don't think I could say that name a whole ton. They all went to El Coyote for dinner, and they were home by 10. It was supposed to be a quiet night at home. It also ended up being the night that Charles Manson instructed some of his followers to go to Cielo Drive and kill everyone in the house. So Tex Watson was the key person involved, according to Chris Connolly. And they show a picture of Tex and Wow. Like, he looks gross and slow. And I don't know why I, but I really got the impression he moved like a sloth. Um, So some guy talks about how Manson led them to murder in baby steps. And then all of a sudden they got to this point. So they come back from commercials showing Manson saying, I'm a convict. I'm an outlaw. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. You are also in desperate need of a shower, sir. It's hard to look at him. Like, it was so gross. I would have been gagging in there. Like, he looks like you can see the stink, like, radiating off him. I would have had to have that stuff they put under your nose when they're doing, like, 
um, embalming things or like autopsy stuff. Yeah. You cannot tell me he does not look like you can't smell him. You probably smell him like three minutes before he gets to the room. So Chris Connolly asks, so how can Charles Manson be guilty of murder if he wasn't there for the murder? Which is a valid question and one that's insane to me. Like, But after the clip of Manson, it's also like, please keep him locked up either way. Like, I don't think he did himself any favors. Like, even if somebody was like, yeah, man, I don't really know that you could go, like, get the death penalty for this. Maybe second degree murder, maybe conspiracy or something. But then you see his jackass, like, acting like a psycho. You're like, never mind. Just, yeah, fry him. He doesn't need to be on the streets. I don't know. They sentenced <laughs> his ass to death. The jury was definitely like, mm, better safe than sorry. Connolly says it was Manson guiding their hand. Connolly says that he would tell Diane his story and the world would hear a madman. And that's an understatement. But I guess, like, if you really can brainwash people like that, yeah, you probably do deserve to go to the death penalty because, I don't know. that That's insane. You can be like, just go kill that house of people and people do it. I can't even get my kids to, like, put their laundry in the laundry basket. But so Manson says, if you're going to do something, do it well. Leave a sign to let the world know that you were there. Have a good day. He's disgusting. And so that's what he was telling the family members. And I feel like he's like, leave a sign to let the world know you're there. And what like he's really doing. He's like, leave your prints and extra evidence. Could you imagine if I thought we were done. was a part of this investigation? Are you going to reference him on every <laughs> single documentary? I will never be done. Oh, my God. Carilla. Like Batman. So they start talking about Manson's charisma. And I think I'm just built different because I don't see one bit of charisma. And not just like because he's like disgusting and dirty from 1994. Like, first of all, he's tiny. For sure, I'm not putting up with group sex and you are shorter than me. No, thank you. Like he and smaller than me, like. He's just like someone I would not be able to be around for more than 30 minutes at a time. Like, first of all, you probably weigh like half of me. And so that's annoying. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't, ha- I don't know. You have to be bigger. Like than a me. pixie. And he just looked like, like, just like a pixie. I have zero desire to ever sit around a fire listening to his bullshit or his music. Like, I would have no pain. I'd be like, look, I can't listen to your sad song again. Look, and we get it. You're Jesus Christ. I heard you last week. Like, <laughs> I'd be like, can I just read my book? <laughs> but, like, I also, like, I then, see, that's why I don't think I but could I ever be like in a cult. I feel like you'd have a hard time falling for that bullshit. Like, I, I can't be around that many people all the time. Well, probably because look I'm already look there was other ridiculous bullshit ingrained in my brain long before this that I think be like what Jesus will hate me oh yeah actually no I, I, I think it'd be the people 
I'm like, uh uh-uh, I'm not going to be around you people all the time. Also, he just looks annoying. Even (laughs) outside of jail, like, even they showed pictures of when he was free, he still looked like his smell is super offensive. He he just looks dusty and stinky, and he looks like he would get on your last nurse. He looks like that person that always talks in platitudes, and you're like, can you pass me like the guacamole? And they're like, do you know the guacamole is like the fruit of your soul? It's like, fuck off. Can I just have my chips? Don't you think like he looks like he'd be that annoying person that everything would be a lesson of some sort. And you'd be like, oh, fuck right off. It, it would exhaust me. See, that's the other thing. I, I oh my God. talk a lot. So I don't think I can handle other people that talk the same amounts as me. Oh, look, I've reined it in a lot. It used to be awful. I'm sure our family growing up was like, oh, my God, I need Excedrin. That kid is not going to stop talking for the next four hours. What? Your dad did laugh because I think I asked them that drunk. I was like, when we called drunk, I'm pretty sure I asked your dad if he was like, (laughs) if he, um, what did I ask? If he needed Advil or did he get did he get headaches? Oh my god. Or would he dread when I came in town because I talked so much? <laughs> and he just started laughing. <laughs> and your mom's all like, no, I'm like, stop lying. And then she just started laughing. <laughs> oh my god. I would have hated me growing up. <laughs> like, this bitch is so talkative and she's a know-it-all. <laughs> I was very confident in told that Manson used drugs so he could suggest things to the family while they were in an altered state. <laughs> I wrote, asking drug or what? drug people questions is risky. Feelings can end up super hurt. <laughs> I said, I would think asking people um, asking drunk or drug people questions is extremely risky because <laughs> feelings could end up super hurt. Don't ask me what you want and <laughs> if, what I think of you when I'm drunk. <laughs> if you are not prepared for my answer. <laughs> <laughs> like that shit comes out before I can even think of what I'm talking about. <laughs> so the women, or at least one of them, blame acid for their blind following of Manson. This bitch says that he blew life into dead birds, and I'm extremely skeptical. Like, you've, he blew life into dead birds. He probably froze birds and then warmed them up. Then she says he they were on control the weather. The time. Of course they believed it. And I wrote, I mean, who would ever believe that? <laughs> I said, only an idiot. Make it snow and it's 90 degrees out. Prove it to me. 
Manson would ask his followers if they would die for him, if they would act as a finger on his hand. And I wrote, it's a no for me, dog. Especially me. I wouldn't even answer my door unless I know who you are, what you want, and confirmed it with me prior. Yeah, I'll be the part of you over here taking a nap, but I'll pass on killing people for you, you numbnuts. Jeff says on the night of August 8th, 1969 Manson goes out and picks three of his women Susan Atkins that bitch scares me Patricia Krenwinkel and Linda Kasabian Patricia says that Leslie woke her up told her to get dressed and do everything that Tex told her to do Manson's instructions to Tex Watson were go kill everybody in the house on Cielo Drive Manson associated that house with his disappointed career as a singer-songwriter because Terry Melcher <laughs> once lived in that house. And, I mean, that's solid logic. I'm sure it's the house's fault. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? And, like, your disappointing career. Like, you don't have a career. Manson knew that Terry Melcher had moved, which I guess, I always had thought that he just remembered the address and just assumed he still lived there. But he's like, no, nah, fuck it. Just kill everyone in that house. Manson is saying, I only told them to go do what Tex said. I never told anyone anything other than what they wanted to do. Whatever. That doesn't even make sense to me. Like, first of all, like. Didn't you just kind of admit that you did tell them what to do? You said listen to text. But, I mean, whatever. At the same time, if I... <laughs> I don't know. He's an idiot. But, like, if I were in that interview and people are questioning me about it, I would just turn to, like, Diane and be like, um, take your clothes off <laughs> and then like when she's like fuck no I'd be like I just told you to take your clothes off and look at you still not naked <laughs> so Manson told Susan Atkins to leave a sign something witchy Jeff tells us that Susan Atkins was a very a very troubled young woman she was Manson's watchdog crazy enough to do anything Linda Kasabian was the getaway driver and she was only with them because she had a valid driver's license like, jeez. They drove up to the front gate and Tex Watson climbed over the fence and cut the wires. At the same time, a car is coming down the driveway and Stephen Parent had been visiting his friend who was the caretaker of the Tate Polanski house on Cielo Drive. Tex apparently had Wyatt Earp's gun and pulled it on Stephen Parent. Like, why is that a relevant point? That it's Wyatt Earp's gun. Stephen said... Please don't shoot me. Please don't kill me. I'm on my way out. Like, what horrible luck for that kid. So Tex shot him four times. And I can imagine that was very loud. Yeah. Although, you know what? I think people could, like, do that in my neighborhood. I'm like, oh, that sounds like gunshots and think nothing else of it. Um, we see text from an old interview and he says, I was so high on speed that I understood what I was doing, but it just didn't make any difference anymore. And that clarified nothing. When the four killers broke into the house, they cut through a screen door, climbed through the window and snuck in that way. Wojtek Frykowski was found sleeping on a couch. Abigail Folger was reading in her bed. 
Jace Sebring and Sharon Tate were sitting on her bed talking. And I was like, hmm, that sounds suspect. Like, it's very weird no one brings all this stuff up. Like, it says anything about her and Jace Sebring. Like, why is he in your bed, ma'am? I would be mad as shit if Dan got himself killed while he was sitting talking in our bed to some ex. I would be like, oh, your funeral's gonna suck now. Like, his coffin and headstone would be cheap. (laughs) Die leaving me to look like a fool. Fuck right off. I would probably change my name right back to Dignan. A hundred billion percent irrational about it, too. Like, I would be complaining about, like, this man had the audacity to die. To let killers break in our house and kill him. And he's talking to his ex on our bed. Can you believe it? <laughs> like, now I don't get any answers. No details. They're both dead. This is just fucking awful. <laughs> it didn't even happen, and I was already pre-mad about it. Jeff is like, they're sitting on the bed talking. And how do you know that? Could you imagine if that happened now? Like, it'd be on tape and they'd probably be, like, swinging from the chandeliers. Anyway, Tex said, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work when he walked in. And that would be horrifying. (laughs) Although now, I guess now that I've heard if someone walked in, I'd roll, roll my eyes. I'd be like, okay, get a new line. Tex announced... That they were going to kill them all. Like, that's terrifying. Don't announce that you're going to kill me. Just kill me. It was pure madness. Like, breaking into someone's house is, like, way past madness. Could you imagine breaking into someone's house, let alone killing them? So, Patricia says a scuffle started taking place, and J.C. Bring was very protective of Sharon. Like... There's just so many questions I have about Jay and Sharon that nobody's ever even going to ask or talk about. And now all the people involved are dead, so I'm never going to answer to any of these. He was like, she's eight and a half months pregnant. She can't sit on the floor. And I don't know how you could kill anyone, but I really, I, I don't know how you could kill someone pregnant. So Tex stabbed them, then shot him. Like, Jesus Christ. Patricia says there was a point where they were trying to tie everyone up and Abigail Folger tried to make a break for it and so did Wojtek. Um, Abigail ran for the lawn and Patricia went after her with a knife and went out through the back door. Patricia ran her down and started stabbing her. And she says it so matter-of-factly and unemotionally, it was, like, creepy. It, it's, I mean, it just looked bizarre to be talking about killing someone so nonchalantly. She said that Abigail said, I'm already dead. And I wonder if, like, that was the drugs talking to her or if Abigail, like, realized they were on drugs and said that hoping she would think that, like, she was dead and walk away. So Patricia says she looked around and thought, this is wrong. She describes it as an awful and horrendous stance that no matter what was not going to stop. So Abigail was stabbed 28 times. I noticed Patricia has some 80s blue eyeshadow shit on, and it looked like Daniel applied it. And, like, this lady, I don't know, they're all annoying when they talk about it now. Because they do, like, they all did this stuff, but they talk about what they did so, like, it's like nothing. Like, they're just reciting a grocery list, but then they put all the blame on Manson. Like, you're all monsters. 
So Tex Watson jumped on Wojtek and hit him over the head with the butt of the gun and repeatedly stabbed him. He was stabbed 51 fucking times. You would think like his hand would be tired, but I guess he was on speed. Susan Atkins stabbed Sharon Tate to death. Like that is, I I, I think it'd be hard yeah. to just kill a pregnant person to actually stab her is insane. She told Sharon that she was going to do it, which is also disturbing. And I mean, I probably would have had a heart attack at that point. So Susan did interviews describing how she killed Sharon, and she says that she felt nothing. She felt absolutely nothing for her. Susan talks in this really breathy, like, way of speaking, and um, it's creepy. Have you seen that lady on TikTok? Um, she oh, no, Marilyn I seen her. Monroe's old house. And so she talks like that, like, just very, like, breathy. Her name's like Jasmine Chiswell or something. But she does, like, they bought Marilyn Manson's old house, or Marilyn Manson. Oh. Marilyn Monroe's old house. And she dresses like vintage. Her and her husband both do. And she actually looks like her. <laughs> but she talks like her. But she's really from like Scotland. I don't know. It's random. Yeah. But Susan says that Sharon begged for her life and the life of her baby. Like, that's evil. Like, I. I don't know how you could even talk about it. And didn't she like, didn't she petition the court for compassionate release like at the end of her life? I don't know. Hold on. I'll Google it. Hold on. Because I think that she did. Uh, Yeah, she did. She got like brain cancer. And so she petitioned like when it was terminal to like die at home. But I don't think they let her. I clicked out of it. Also, she bragged about killing Sharon, but Tex says that Susan panicked and he had to kill Sharon, which mm-hmm. seems like a weird lie. Like, why would you lie to say that you killed someone if you didn't? So I don't trust anything about her. And because, again, why would Tex lie saying that he had to kill her? So 10 months prior to killing Sharon, Susan Atkins gave birth. Which, what? Like, I was still very exhausted 10 months after I gave birth. That is horrible. Sharon asked Susan to let her have her baby and then come kill me, which is very sad. Like, and I guess she's, like, grasping at straws because who would ever, like, be like, oh, okay. Well, just call me when you have the baby. So Susan wrote pig on the door at Cielo. She dipped a towel in blood because she didn't want to dip her fingers in the blood. I mean, they're just, they're idiots. So (laughs) Charlie was probably like, go there and puke on the carpet and shit in their toilets and don't flush them. Because like, he's like, go leave witchy things and they're all idiots. They're like, okay, we'll write pig on the door. I, I, I don't understand cults. I don't. <laughs> I would have been killed so quick by his cult. I would have just been hanging around with my resting bitch face out all the time. Like making I'm real sure faces whenever that dumbass started talking about being a famous musician. <laughs> Never in life would I have slept with him. I would choose death. I'd be like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. stab me then. 
you know that Spawn Ranch was just like a variety pack of STDs. That's probably the medication that uh, you, the guy I from mean, the I'm surprised you didn't hand out antibiotics at every meal. <laughs> Man. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to need you to get some more. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Antibiotics. And delicing medicine. Manson tells us, I said, if you're going to do something, leave something witchy. Just like I would tell you. Like, all right, back to the padded cell you go. Like, what the fuck are you even talking about? It's a shock that you were never given parole, sir. Um, He's just like, he's so annoying. It's very annoying the way he says it. It's like when someone apologizes <laughs> to you, but they say, like, I'm ch- sorry you chose to get your feelings hurt. Like, one, that's not an apology. And, like, two, like, just shut up. He, I mean, he's like, just like I would tell you, if you're going to do something, do it well. And leave something witchy. Leave a sign to let the world know you were there. Have a good day. Like, whatever. Go the fuck on. Patricia says that when she got back to the ranch, Charlie came up and asked her how it went. And she looked at him and said, Charlie, they were so young. Um, I can tell you one thing. Um, That would be the first thing that I would have said. Um, I probably would have been like, why the fuck did you make me kill people? Like, that's weird. Like that. And could you imagine having to investigate this case? Like, that'd be annoying. <laughs> like, fuck right off trying to act like, oh, Charlie told me to do it. Like, okay. Like, to jail, you go. I would have zero patience. Like, I don't know. He, I mean, for sure he did influence them. But by the time, like... I don't know. You should know better than to kill someone. And especially he wasn't even there. It's not like he had a gun like, oh, kill them or I'm going to kill you. Like, you could have gotten away from him like a billion different ways, a billion different times. So, Jerry DeRosa was the first officer on the (laughs) scene and nope, I could never be a cop. I would be like, uh-uh, you look. I'm not going. There's no way. I could never. I'll wait right here. The first thing he saw was Stephen Parent's car, and there were two bodies on the lawn, Abigail and Boytek. Pig was written on the door in blood, and the door was ajar. Sharon Tate's body was in the bed, in the bedroom in front of the fireplace, and Jay Sebring was next to her. Jeff tells us that there were puddles and pools of blood everywhere. Ew. Ew. The first officer on the scene said it was really quiet. All you could hear was the sound of the flies on the bodies. Yeah. I would have barked. I would have barfed. Former FBI profiler Brad Garrett believes that the scene was intended to shock the police. Or it's a bunch of psychos doing super psycho things high on drugs. So that's probably shocking to non-psychos, I'm guessing. The police immediately wanted to speak to the caretaker of the property, William Garrettson. Could you imagine getting woken up and like all well, those like, people? How do you not hear anything? Or dead? Well, it says he woke up to the police holding a gun to his head. I would have shit my pants. Yeah, who knows? Well, when his friend left, maybe he was like, maybe they gotten drunk or high together or something. Or like, I mean, I don't know if he had like headphones or anything, or if he's like a really heavy sleeper. Like, I, and it doesn't say like where yeah. his caretaker like cottage was or wherever. Like, maybe it wasn't right there. Yeah, but I don't. I mean, 
I don't, that would be like terrifying. And like, I would think that you're in jail for a while because, but I mean, he wasn't. So the cop grabbed him and handcuffed him. And obviously they thought he had killed everyone, but he got released the next day due to lack of evidence, which like that sucks that Mm -hmm. he had to go through it. But like he got lucky because I feel like a lot of people would have just been charged and left to rot. So this old lady who looks like the mom from Everybody Loves Raymond says that she was a young reporter at the time. Her name is Linda Dutch. She says that she says that day in August of 1969, she was assigned to go to Orange County Airport to meet President Nixon. He landed and she called in to say that he had landed and they were like, forget the president. There's a much bigger story going on. Um, And one thing that was like very sad about this and I feel the same way about like the Lacey Peterson thing is that the baby would have lived had she been a had she given birth at the time of her death um so we see Roman at some sort of press conference or something and he says all of you know how beautiful she was but only a few of you know how good she was and it was sad watching him talk like I can't even imagine like the like that would be the craziest thing like one your wife's dead your kid's dead like and it's this horrible weird mass murder and you're not even in the country i don't that i mean that would i think that would fuck you up in the head for a long time so we see another news report uh, talking about the murder of a couple that had some striking similarities to the Tate murder scene slash scenario. And Linda yelled, it's happening I thought it was Leno. across the newsroom. Leno, or Lino and Rosemary LaBianca were killed in their home. They were stabbed to death. And Jeff says that Lino and Rose, or Leno and Rosemary LaBianca died because Charles Manson knew how to get to their house. He had never actually met the LaBiancas. And I remember way back, like, long long ago when i like first heard about this i thought that maybe he thought that's where terry melcher had moved but that was when i thought he thought terry melcher lived at the tate house so manson and some of the family members had attended parties next door to the labianca's home so then it cuts to manson who said it was next door to harold true which sounds like a very fake name to me and he says, Harold True was my old road dog. He was, it was a party pad. Stephen Kay was an assistant prosecutor on Manson's trial. And he says that the last stop Rosemary and Lena LaBianca made was a newsstand. She saw a headline, headline regarding the Tate murders and started crying, saying, how could anybody be so cruel? He says she was a victim 15 to 20 minutes later. I'm very skeptical of that story. Like, who... Who can confirm that story? So Jeff tells us that Manson orchestrated the LaBianca murders. He's the one who initially went into the house and cased it. He came out and got Tex Watson. They went back and got a couple of women. Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel were the girls they grabbed. Leslie Van Houten says she knew people would be murdered. And Manson told... um, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca not to worry. It was just a robbery and he wasn't going to hurt them. 
the old guy telling us about this looks at the camera and emphasizes that he wasn't going to hurt them. Like he's <laughs> like he's doing it like he's Jim from the office. Like, isn't this guy full of shit? He said that he's not going to hurt them. So Leslie Van Houten says, Pat and I took Mrs. LaBianca into the bedroom and the sounds of Mr. LaBianca dying came into the bedroom. When Mrs. LaBianca heard her husband being killed by Tex, she started calling out to him and yelling for him. I couldn't listen to that. It's, oh, that sounds awful. Leslie talks super slow and dramatic. Just tell the fucking story. Patricia says, Tex came in and killed her. Like, geez. And they cut back to <laughs> Leslie, and then Tex turned me around and handed me the knife and said, Do something. And I probably would have gone with sobbing and rocking back and forth. And he said, Because Manson told us all to get involved and get our hands dirty. So she stabbed yeah. Mrs. LaBianca Ill. in the lower back about 16 times. Like, what the fuck? 16 times? God mm-hmm. damn. Jeff says, oh, I mean, that is awful. And like how, I don't know. Like, I feel like, I feel like I don't believe it. I feel like they were all in on it and they all just decided to be like, nope, he told us to. Jeff says that following Manson's order, death to pigs and helter skelter were written on the walls. They took food out of the refrigerator. Like, ew. But, I mean, I get, I bet that they were hungry. Their living situation seems less than ideal. They're like, look, I will have a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they weren't getting food. They're like, oh, we get to share this, like, cracker back at the ranch? No thanks. So, based on news footage, they're being told that the Tate crime scenes were similar to the La Bianca crime scene. And Dick Shoemaker says the police at that time really were in a quandary and they came under a lot of heat from the LA papers in 1969 for not getting anywhere. <laughs> Dude! And I wrote, oh, wait a decade. They will. Love Gil Carrillo. <laughs> oh my God, here we go. <laughs> Dude, what? Oh, you're so upset about Gil? Like, Gil solves nothing. So we see a clip of an interview from 1994. Patty Tate says that she grew up with a lot of fear because nowhere was safe. People in Los Angeles panicked. Guns were flying off the shelves. And I'm always afraid of people that get guns out of fear. Like half, like they probably buy guns and bullets and don't get any other kind of training. And like, in a situation like that, what if you accidentally startle someone who is like all sorts of stressed out and panics and shoots you? So someone says people did this because it had been three months and no one solved the case. And I wrote, again, just wait about a decade to get the joy that is Gil <laughs> Too Cool Carrillo. Look, I did this right after Night Stalker. I was still mad. Sergeant Dan Cook, LAPD spokesperson, one eye is barely open. He's talking all slow and drawn out. So at the Tate house slash crime scene, police found marijuana and narcotics. So they started investigating who did drugs among the victims at the Tate house, 
when and who their sources might have been could the murders have been a drug deal gone wrong that night um and for the labiancas um lena labianca had some gambling debts so could that have been a mob murder they were just trying to see like sort it out so lapd had one set of detectives working on the murders at the tate residence and a completely different set of detectives of detectives working on the LaBianca murders and they didn't work together. Some guy says it had been a botched investigation partially because it was split into two separate investigations, but also because there were a ton of missed clues. A TV crew was shooting in Laurel Canyon and found a bunch of old clothes. So Al Wyman, former KABC reporter says that they thought about it and said, Where would we go if we just killed somebody covered in blood? What would you do? Get rid of the clothes. So they tested their theory and found the clothes. A reporter says the police were not happy that the press figured it out before the police. And I wrote, oh, poor police. Fuck right off. Channel 7 News figured that out. A 10-year-old boy found the murder weapon. Like a smooth move. They make it a point to drive home the fact that the little boy didn't touch the gun because he had seen enough TV to know better. And then the cop shows up and just picks it up barehanded when he gets to the scene. Classic LAPD. Like, that's so fucking annoying. And they caught that shit on camera. Another thing that LAPD missed was tying in the murder of Gary Hinman. Political piggies have been scrawled on the wall. Gary Hinman was a musician, and he died in Malibu, so that crime fell under the jurisdiction of L.A. Sheriff's Department. So Jeff tells us that the day after the Tate murders, the investigators of the Hinman murders come to Los Angeles, and they were trying to talk to the officers of the Tate investigation to say that I think the Tate murders have a link, but they didn't get the opportunity to do that. They were told that, no, the LAPD was certain the murder was drug-related, like golf hey. claps for the LAPD. Hey, hold on Y'all a sec. really stay on top of shit, huh? So, despite being absolutely fucking worthless, police get a big break in the case, and they announce that three warrants have been issued. To and they they tell the press this. Chris Connolly very dramatically says, and that is when the world sees Charlie Manson on the cover of Time magazine. And then they show Hobo Manson from 94 talking all loud. And he's like, when I go up on the mountain and say, do it, it gets done. If it don't get done, then I'll move on it. And that's the last thing in the world you want me to do. Like, he sounds Mm -hmm. evil and psycho. And you just proved everyone's point. But I had two reactions watching that. One, I would probably avoid comments like that if I'm trying to absolve myself of responsibility when someone else killed someone and their reason why is because I told them so. But my other reaction was, like, could you even imagine how bad that room smelled with him in it? So the police showed up to Spawn Ranch to arrest Manson and the others, but not for the murders, for car theft. So they were stealing cars from the neighborhood and they were transforming some into doom buggies, which seems extremely random. When they told Manson why they were there, Manson was relieved. And so he started laughing, like real smooth. Chris Connolly says that Manson wrote songs about that type of crime. They played a portion of Clang, Bang, Clang, a hideous fucking song. Did you? It's truly hideous. It goes, Clang, Bang, Clang went the big iron door. They put me in the cell with a concrete floor. Like, but he was going to be bigger than the Beatles. I'm real fucking sure. 
They got the date wrong on the paperwork, which nullified the raid and let Manson <laughs> go. Like LAPD winning awards across the board. When Manson got released on the car theft charges, he wanted to get him and his family far from the police. So he got a caravan and headed to Death Valley. So he believed committing the Tate LaBianca murders would start a race war or Helter Skelter, which I never really understood why he thought that would happen. But he believed the African-Americans would fight the white people and win. Like how or why? Who the fuck knows? So Manson thought that there would be an apocalypse and tricked out doom buggies with machine gun holders. <laughs> so I'm picturing like the California Love Tupac video. Like they're a bunch of fucking morons for sure. Leslie Van Houten says that in the desert, Manson told them if they ever catch me again, the men in the black robes, I'm just going to be crazy old Charlie that all of you took care of. So basically he's going to play up his mental health issues. He reminds me of a spider monkey for some reason. So he thinks this is a solid plan and he wants the girls to back him up. So he seems to forget that people can't hear his thoughts. Maybe it's because it's 2021. Like, I don't oh, see, I don't know. like, how, how, what race war was that going to start? <laughs> because only white people are stupid enough to do some shit like that. <laughs> um, and I say that people. as a white people. <laughs> Like, his plan to act mentally ill is stupid also. Officer James Purcell had gone to Barker Ranch and had no idea what he was in store for. And this guy says that James Purcell had a candle in one hand, gun in the other. Like, I'm sorry, did he just say candle? So him and his candle are going through the ranch and he sees hair hanging out of a small cupboard door. And fingers were wiggling in the air, in the hair, and the door opened and a figure began coming out. So Manson came out and said, hi. And James said, who are you? And Manson said, Charles Manson. 26 people were arrested and taken to the jail. Like, what the fuck? Like, and notice <laughs> it's at a small cupboard door. And they're like, Manson just walked right out. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why calling him short is so funny to me. So, originally, Charlie's only charged with car theft, and it wasn't until Susan Atkins' dumbass started bragging to fellow inmates that people started putting two and two together. Like, I hate stupid people. Like, God. Virginia Graham, who looks bougie and ancient, was in jail with Susan Atkins. Like, okay, granny with a record. She says that Susan started talking about how stupid the police were, which she's not wrong, by the way, and that police really were on the wrong track about a lot of things. So Virginia asks her, why would she say that? And Susan is like, you know those murders up in Benedict Canyon? And she's like, yeah. And she's like, you know who did it? And Virginia's like, uh, no, bitch, I'm in jail with you. Why would I know that? And this dumb bitch, Susan, is like, uh, you're looking at her. Like, golf claps for you, you stupid slut. Like, God, who even fucking cares? It's not impressive. I bet Manson was pissed. He for sure didn't tell you to do that. Why would you run your mouth about anything in jail? Like, people are seriously dumb. Then we get a news clip about the link between the murders, and Manson is trying to incite a race war by trying to make it look like the Black Panthers committed the murders. But, like, I don't... Maybe write Black Power on the wall then, you idiot. I don't know. The murder trial was bananas. They show clips of them with shaved heads, like, singing like psychos. Totally wholesome. 
Manson tried to act like he was fighting against the system and being treated unfairly. Like, poor tiny you. He reminds <laughs> you know me who of Lil Sweet is? Pepper commercials with Lil Sweet. Yes! <laughs> Do you know who Dr. Justin Guarini? <laughs> All, every time they showed him, I just kept imagining them being like, <laughs> you know, that guy like slides in and he's like, ooh. So Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Leslie Minhout, and Patricia Krenwinkel were on trial for capital murder. It was a circus. Like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm Manson. I'm killing Susan Atkins. Like, I'm being like, can one of you girls take her out? This dumb bitch is the reason why I'm here. So the trial went on for a year. It was complete insanity. They would come in acting up all the time. My patience would have been zero. Manson was all over the place. The girls were batshit. They show them walking and singing, and they would all get on my last nerve if I were had to be anywhere in that courtroom. So Patricia says that all of the proceedings were scripted. They would meet in the morning, and Charlie would decide, today I want you to stand up and hold your head in, or your hand in some stupid symbol. You're going to get up and scream, old gray mare. You're going to burn an X on your head. You're going to go bald. Well, you dumb bitches did it. Like, what does that say about you? She says most <laughs> of the time they were in some little room because they kept getting kicked out of court. <laughs> the judge is like, fuck you. Take a time out. Okay? <laughs> Just sit in the corner. Don't talk to me the rest of the day. <laughs> the rest of Manson's girls camped out at the courthouse, and they were always available for interviews. And they were never available for soap, though. Like, those people were disgusting. So, and they were very loyal to Manson for no apparent reason. At one point in the trial, Charlie leapt over the table trying to get to the judge with a pencil in his hand, screaming, someone should cut your head off. The bailiff tackled him midair. Like, what a fucking joke. After that, the incident, the judge started carrying a revolver. Um, Richard Nixon announced publicly that Manson was guilty. In August of 1970, he said, here's a man who is guilty directly or indirectly of eight murders without reason. So one of the defense attorneys slipped Manson a newspaper, and all of a sudden in the courtroom, Manson held up the newspaper that read, Manson guilty. Nixon declares. He showed it to the jury thinking it would cause a mistrial. What a doofus. I would be so pissed. Like, even, I would find you guilty. Even if I thought you weren't. Like the judge is like nice try. Keep going. So Jeff says that initially the prosecutor. Planned on presenting the case as a robbery. That had gone wrong. It was Vincent Bugliosi. Well he saw beyond that. And they said they needed to use Helter Skelter. We see um, Bugliosi tell us. That Helter Skelter means. To Charles Manson at least. The black man rising up against the entire white race. The establishment. With the exception of Charlie and his family. They intended to escape to the desert. And live in the bottomless pit. A place he got from Revelations 9. Like that's a lot to take in. So. He's the one that linked Helter Skelter to the Beatles, I guess, because that was before my time. But I never looked as the Beatles as edgy. But also, I mean, Put It In Your Mouth came out when I was in high school. So, I mean, I don't think anyone was edgy as that. 
until we got WAP. Um, Bugliosi got the family to talk about Mancy, Manson stating that the race war is coming. We know because the Beatles have told us in the song Piggies, in the song Blackbird. Most of all, though, was in the song Helter Skelter. The strategy was to take those words on the walls of crime scenes to ignite this race war. I don't know. It's insane. I feel like they got some bad drugs and fucked up. Like, that was not clear at all. Bugliosi says those words being printed in blood in those crime scenes was tantamount to Manson's fingerprints being found at the crime scene. Like, okay, that's a stretch, but okay, we'll go with it. Jeff says that Bugliosi was able to quantify the hold that Manson had over his followers. If Manson can convince his followers that the Beatles were telling them that a race war was coming, this is such a huge step that Manson would get them to believe that it was their idea to go out and murder people. So that was the whole genius of the Helter Skelter plan and presentation, according to Jeff. Like, those bitches carved swastikas, shave their heads, and walked hand in hand singing like psychos. Just point that out. You're guilty. Like, I don't think they had to work that hard. So Linda Kasabian had been the driver on both nights, and she was granted immunity and was the prosecution's star witness. She was an accomplice and equally guilty, but without her, the prosecution might have lost the case. So she says that she was outside on the lawn, and Wojtek was coming towards her, and he had been stabbed, and she thought, oh, God, make this stop. So while she's testifying, Manson stared at her and he said, you have lied three times. The next lie, number four, will hurt you. Like, how annoying. Like, you're saying that in court. You can't get to her. Like, just shut up already. So Manson specifically told the women to testify that he had nothing to do with the murders. The attorneys for the women realized they were all doing what Manson had told them to do as opposed to what was in their best interests. So Leslie Van Houten's lawyer wanted to separate her trial from Manson, and Manson found that threatening. Manson pointed across the counsel table and glared at him and said, Attorney, I don't ever want to see you in this courtroom again. The speed with which I would have bounced would have been epic. He wasn't seen in the courtroom again. He was found dead in a creek six months later, but was so badly decomposed they couldn't determine what the cause of death was. Which, that's insane and unfortunate. His name was Ronald Hughes, and Bugliosi tells a reporter that years later he was contacted and was told that someone in the Manson family killed Ronald Hughes. Like, oh, that's shocking. You don't think everybody already knows that, you dumbass? No one was charged in his death, though. Homeless Hobo Manson says he believes Ronald Hughes was killed by the district attorney. Like, sure, buddy. Like, what in the world? He thinks someone pushed him off a cliff. On one hand, he's horrifying, but on the other, he's so ridiculous, it's hard to take him seriously. So there's just, like, I just have one little bit left. So all four defendants were found guilty of first-degree murder. Um, They showed a news report announcing the verdict, and the anchorman says, The jury today found all four defendants guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy in in the deaths a year and a half ago of Sharon Tate, the actress, and four other people at her home, and the killing of two other persons two nights later. Like, that seemed rude. Like, you said her name and no one else's. You can't just say their names? That was so... I don't know why that upset me. But I was mad. So they were sentenced to death, and then the death penalty was abolished in California, so the sentences were all commuted to life. Susan Atkins died in prison from brain cancer. Tex Watson has disgustingly fathered four children in prison. Leslie Van Houten is still in prison. She was denied parole. Patricia Krenwinkel is California's longest incarcerated female prisoner. 
And Squeaky Firm tried to kill the president in 1975, Gerald Ford. She served 34 years in prison and was released in 2009. Manson was still in prison when this was released. And Has then it been that long? And he died November 19th of 2017. And he was 83. And he had a... I feel like it was I like know, just it was, last year. It was more recent too, but he died of a heart attack. Well, we've also spent like a year being like locked up in our homes. So I think all time seems weird. Like it seemed like time oh stopped. And it's just been like two years. Yeah. I feel like that was like just last year that that happened. Yeah, I did think it was going to be in, like, 2019 or something. I wasn't expecting... Yes. To, like, I don't know, 2017 just sounds very long ago. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, that was... Like, he is He was only 5'2". Well, Wikipedia says he was only 5'2", and that's as tall as I was. I thought he was shorter than that. Or am. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I'm 5'7 or 5'6. Dude, I used to, well, that is the one thing about Dan being, like, so tall. Like, I could wear heels and I looked still little. That's like, Dan, like, is this not the most ridiculous thing? He says stuff sometimes, like, he's like, oh, I'll get in shape. Like, and he's like, oh, I'll look good for you. It's like, um... No, you eat. <laughs> if you want to make me feel good, like be bigger than me always. Thank you for listening to True Crime True Family. Follow us on our Twitter at TCTFP and Instagram at TCTF Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us where you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode, please leave a rating and review. We appreciate all the feedback. Join us next week.